is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story. And, well, we're going to spend some time on Vince Lombardi on this day in history. He retired, and Hengler has come up with his usual excellent produced piece on Coach. Here it is. I'll tell you something, Leroy. You're not going to get your job back unless we get a better performance. Come on, let's beat him up there. Get him out of there, will you? Vince Lombardi was born in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, and went on to be the icon of winning and success in America and throughout the world. This is his story, as told by his players, his family, and himself. Our narrator is the unmistakable voice of John Facenda. And why not? The man nicknamed the Voice of God could take classic sports footage and make it even more unforgettable. So let's begin. Here's John Facenda. Vincent Thomas Lombardi, 1913. He was born on June 11th in Brooklyn, New York. His godfather was Sonny Jim Fitzsimmons, a legendary racetrack figure who trained three derby winners. When he was eight, he was an altar boy at St. Mark's Church. He wanted to be a priest. Here's Vince's mother, Mrs. Matilda Lombardi. He wanted to be a priest, then all of a sudden, that was off. Lombardi was an all-city fullback at St. Francis Preparatory High School and then accepted a scholarship to Fordham University in the Bronx to play for the Fordham Rams and their coach, Jim Crowley, one of the four horsemen of Notre Dame in the 1920s. Here's Tim Cohane, the former publicity director at Fordham University. Those days, Fordham had a play in which Lombardi is the right guard had to block the Pittsburgh left tackle Tony Matizzi, who was 215, 220, an All-American player. Lombardi weighed about 172. And uh, in trying to block Matizzi, or in blocking him, Vince received severe uh, cuts inside his mouth to the extent that he played almost 60 minutes with a mouthful of blood. I think the point in that is that there's nothing that Lombardi has demanded of the Packers that he didn't demand of himself full measure in his own playing days. In 1937, he graduates cum laude from Fordham. He goes to law school, marries, and is forced to find work. He coaches at St. Cecilia's High School in New Jersey and teaches Latin, physics, and chemistry. In 1947, he returns to Fordham as an assistant coach. In 1949, he goes to West Point as an assistant to Red Blake. Lombardi gave all the credit for his football success to Army's Red Blake and his time at West Point Academy. In 1954, Lombardi became an assistant for the New York Giants, but saw himself as a head coach. For five years, Lombardi searches impatiently for a head coaching position. He's rejected for one reason or another. In February of 1959, he arrives in Green Bay head coach and general manager of a team that hasn't seen a winning season for 11 disastrous years. A team with no direction, no future, and no morale. Here's Paul Horning. We knew from the outset that he was in command, a take-charge guy, and a guy that you couldn't fool around with. Here's Vince. I didn't come in and have a meeting with the players and say, myself, I wonder what their morale is going to be. I wonder how they're going to accept me. That wasn't what I said to myself. They're going to have to accept me. I'm not worried about their morale. I'm worried about Vince Lombardi's morale here. Alone, Lombardi resuscitates a disorganized, depressed, dying team. He force-feeds the Packers with his will to work, his demand for discipline, his relentless drive to win. By summer's end, the Packers are Lombardi. 
Here is Jerry Kramer. We were graded, of course, every play of every game throughout the year. And uh, on Thursdays, the grades would be posted on the blackboard for every eye to see. And, uh, Get him out of there, will you? Perhaps this was the start of something instilling some pride in the individuals. Here again is Paul Horning. He's always said that you can't play a football game on Sunday. You have to start playing that football game on Tuesday, the first day of practice. Come on, look at me, 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 look at me. And he's always believed that there's only two things that come before football. That's your religion and your family. There's only one job, and that's football. Here again is Matilda Lombardi. Somebody said he made football players out of some men, and he made men out of some football players. I think he's much more proud of the fact that he made some men out of football players. Here's the great Bart Starr. He tells you that if you give anything less than the best that you have within you at any time, regardless of the, the situation, regardless of the consequences, that uh, you're cheating yourself, you're cheating your teammates, you're cheating professional football, and you're cheating the fans who, uh, uh, who have made the game what it is today for you. But most of all, you're cheating your maker who gave you that God-given talent with which to succeed. Here's Vince. Anybody who has the idea that just to play or just to take part and that's all is necessary, I think, I think he's in the wrong business. I think he's in the wrong country. One of the things that made America great is to try to be the best in everything that they do. And the best, again, is signified by winning. Here again is Jerry Kramer. I've made the statement at times, his gifted children, and I think he thinks of everyone on the club as a child, or his child particularly, and he drives his gifted people so much harder than he does anyone else. He demands that you use your God-given ability the best you can. Here's Willie Davis. He's a coach that I'm sure that have prepared a lot of us to go out and live in a competitive society. Uh, he taught us a lot of values about life. As head coach and general manager of the Green Bay Packers, Lombardi led the team to five NFL championships. And like all good things, even the best things, well, this happens. Green Bay Packer football, as all of football, has grown in leaps and in bounds since 1958. The season begins... Take a good, hard look. Vincent Thomas Lombardi, head coach and general manager of the Green Bay Packers. A winner. To every task, he brought the desire, the dedication, the discipline to succeed. He never coached a losing team. Because of the nature of the business, and because of the growth of the business, and the corporate structure of the Packers, I believe it is impractical for me to try to do both jobs, and I feel I must relinquish one of them. How about regrets? If I had to do things all over again, I, I think I would be very, very... I would think I would pray for more patience, maybe, and more understanding. I, I think these are the two areas where I could, uh, I could improve a great deal, and I've been trying to, believe me. Vincent Thomas Lombardi, February 1st, 1968. On this day in history, Vince Lombardi retired. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this one, Greg.
This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and we're back with our This Day in History segment brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the constitutions, great literature, all the things that matter in American life. Today we're celebrating the life of the late, the great, Vince Lombardi. The Lombardi Trophy, after all, was named after him. A lot of folks don't know who he is. And whether you like football or not, it's not going to matter when you hear this life story. Known by many to be perhaps the greatest football coach of all time, in 1959, in Lombardi's first year ever as head coach, he took the Green Bay Packers through their first winning season in 14 years. He then went on to win the NFL championship game in 1960, the world championships in 61, 62, 65, 66, and 67, and let's not forget that they won the first two Super Bowls. Lombardi wasn't just the greatest football coach in history because he inherited the best team. He had to build it from scratch. And because Lombardi had vision and faith in that vision and could communicate that vision and execute on it, he was the man he was. Here today to discuss the leadership qualities and styles of Lombardi is Pat Williams, co-owner of the Orlando Magic and author of over 80 books on leadership, including Vince Lombardi on Leadership, Life Lessons from a Five-Time NFL Championship Coach, one I highly recommend you pick up. Pat, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Lee. Nice to talk to you. I hope you're doing well. Oh, you bet. And, you know, we've talked about it, you know, Coach Wooden, which was a whole lot of fun. And I think this one might be equally fun, Pat. A very different man with different style. But my goodness, in the end, how he made men better. Uh, let, let's, if we can, talk from the start. Vince Lombardi did, didn't just fall into the Packers job. It was a long and let's just call it a strange journey. Tell us a bit about this man. Well, he was from Brooklyn, and he, was, he played uh, football in, in high school and then went to Fordham in New York and had a wonderful career, really, as a player. Uh, there wasn't uh, really much of pro football around, so he went into teaching and coaching at the high school level, you know, across the river in North Jersey and had good success. He was an excellent teacher, by the way, and uh, coached football and uh, coached basketball. So he had a wide range of uh, teaching and coaching experiences. Then, uh, after World War II, uh, he had the opportunity, his first opportunity, to get into college coaching. He became an assistant at his alma mater, Fordham University, and spent a year or two there and then got a big break uh, by being hired by Red Blake, who was the head football coach at Army uh, at West Point. And uh, He had a good run there. In the meantime, he was seeking out head coaching jobs. He was getting up in years. He was in his late 30s, approaching 40, and wanted to become a head coach, and and nothing opened for him. He did some interviewing, but never got that opportunity. And then he got another big break when the New York Giants uh, hired him, his hometown team, and hired him as as an assistant coach. At the same time, they hired Tom Landry, so you can imagine these, these two great young and, and getting a little bit older assistant coaches were there. The Giants had good success. They had a good run. And finally, finally, Lombardi got some interviews with NFL teams. And at the age of 45 years of age, the Green Bay Packers hired him in 1959. And Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or Green Bay, Wisconsin, I should say, is a far cry from northern New Jersey and New York City. what This was a big change and a big lifestyle change for Coach Lombardi, wasn't it, Pat? 
Well, it was huge, and I think his real dream was to coach the Giants. I think probably uh, Tom Landry wanted the same thing, but uh, they had a head coach, and they weren't going to fire him. And so uh, both of them had to move on. Landry went to Dallas, of course, and uh, took over the expansion Cowboys. And there was Vince Lombardi with his really great first real good opportunity, but it was in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, so that's where he landed. Uh, his dream to be a head coach was right there for him. In addition to being the head coach, he had full authority as the personnel director and the general manager had an understanding with a very previously meddlesome board of owners up there that uh, Lombardi was the voice and the decision maker. And so he had full power and uh, took over a struggling franchise that had a uh, tough go of it. And uh, over time, not much time really, uh, set standards in in coaching and success that – well, we haven't seen the likes of. You know, Sonny Jurgensen, who played for Coach uh, when he went to Washington, said, quote, I think his background as a high school teacher helped make him a great head coach in the NFL. Uh, talk about that, Pat. Well, listen, Lombardi himself said they call it coaching, but it's really teaching. And everybody who ever played for him in Green Bay and then that one year in Washington before his death uh, would tell you that he was just a superb teacher uh, at clinics. They still rave about how he would sit there or be there, you know, for hours on end uh, describing one play, for example, and what everyone, every player should be doing and all the little minutia that went into it. He was just a crackerjack teacher. And, uh, but in addition to that, Lee, he was teaching life. As I did all the interviews with the old Packers on this book, it was amazing. You know, they learned football under him, and they took away a lot of football lessons. But what they really said is that he was preparing us for life. Long after our football careers, he was getting us ready for the long pull of our life. And those lessons that he taught us uh, through football, you know, are still with us today. Yeah, and how many men can say that they have men who are still teaching and coaching us on life and not just our careers, Pat? You know, I wanted to relay a story. David Moranis' book has a story uh, in it of Coach Lombardi at West Point. He's an assistant at West Point, you know, coaching obviously for this legendary head coach. And his job is to run game film to the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City to run it to a pretty famous general. And, and Pat, this is back when generals were generals big generals talk about the role of that general douglas macarthur because can you imagine a young man having to like knock on a door and the door opens and it's douglas macarthur and then you sit and watch game films together talk about douglas macarthur if you could pat well first of all macarthur was a huge army football fan even during world war ii when he was uh, anchored in the pacific you know he kept up with it every week and uh, wanted to know what was going on so he was a huge, huge Army fan, and uh, sure enough, you know, Lombardi was, uh, you know, just cutting his teeth as an assistant, and uh, one of his assignments was to drive the film each week down to New York so that uh, uh, Douglas MacArthur could watch the games. That was long before television, of course, and long before ESPN, you know, where everything is recorded, but uh, that was a big deal to MacArthur to get that film brought into him, and uh, that was one of... Vince Lombardi's assignments. Well, and you know, in the end, West Point, and we told a great story back when we were doing Roosevelt, 
If you remember, Roosevelt thought football was so important in the formation of men's character, in the formulation of, in the end, really a good military force. So I think probably Douglas MacArthur's affection for football was what it meant to the institution, West Point, and and what West Point meant to our U.S. military, Pat. Well, and so many of those generals, you know, took part in sports. You know, Eisenhower, for example, went there and played football until he got injured. Uh, so football was and still is a big deal at West Point, and uh, it meant a lot. It meant a lot to the entire uh, United States Army, and uh, still does. The Army-Navy uh, rivalry is alive and well, and always will be so. So Lombardi had a few years of that, Lee, and he made the most of it. So when his time came to go to the Giants as an assistant, you know, he was ready and made his mark there. Those old Giants, and I got to a few of them in writing this book. There are not many left. Uh, Frank Gifford is gone now. I talked to Roosevelt Greer. I had talked to Sam Huff, um, Bob Schnelker. I mean, they are very few, but uh, they all had vivid memories. I talked to uh, Pat Summerall before he died, and they all had vivid memories of uh, Vince Lombardi as the assistant, and they all knew that it was just a matter of time before he was going to be a head coach. You bet. My goodness, that the New York Giants had two assistant coaches named Tom Landry and Vince Lombardi, and that neither of them ended up being the head coach of the New York Giants. That's a giant oops, Pat. And you know you're in management of a sports franchise. That's a big oops. Well, Jim Lee Howe was their coach, and he'd had good success uh, he had turned all the most of the coaching duties over to Lombardi and, and Landry, but they and they had won. So the Giants were in a tough spot, you know, to to fire a, a very successful coach and uh, a popular guy and replace him with one of those assistants. It just didn't seem right. And the Mara family, uh, so ethical, and they do everything at such a high plane that uh, you know that really wasn't going to happen. So but true. as you can see, both of those coaches went on and had great careers and i'm i'm sure the giants uh even to this day miss them so true more with pat williams and the life of coach lombardi this is lee habib this is our american stories Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're on with Pat Williams, who joins us whenever we're doing an important coach, business leader. We had an amazing time doing two hours with Walt Disney, one of which we spent with Pat, and we also did two hours on John Wooden, uh, one of which we spent with Pat, and he's written the books on so many of these men, and uh, he's also happens to be the co-founder of the Orlando Magic, has adopted, I, I, I've lost count, Pat, it's so many kids you've adopted, and you, uh, as a sideline, you run, what, 4,000, you know, marine, marathons and triathlons, and it's just, you're, you're, you're just a remarkable human being, and thanks so much for taking the time to join us, Pat. 
My pleasure, Lee. Nice to talk about Vince Lombardi anytime. You bet. Hey, let's talk about the role. I'm going to read from you uh, about the role of Coach's faith in his life. And from your book, you write, Young Vince's life revolved around the Catholic Church. He was an altar boy at St. Mark's, and he attended Mass every single day until his death. If there was one dimension of Lombardi's life that defined him above all others, it was his faith. Talk about that, Pat. Well, he grew up in a strong Catholic home uh, in Brooklyn, and, uh, and listen, there was some sense that, that he might go into the priesthood, but he was uh, a strong believer in godly, and he was very, very faithful uh, to his religion. He was uh, at, at Mass every morning, and that went on his entire life. He talked openly uh, with his team, for example, about uh, his faith and about the importance of, of God in your life. And he talked very openly also about love and uh, created a bond of love uh, with those players. And we don't think about that when you think of Lombardi, but uh, that was very much uh, a part of who he was. And to, his, to this day, his players you know, still remember that, and uh, that made a deep impact on them. You know, he, he did something unusual that I don't think most people knew about, Pat. He went through four years of a six-year program to be a priest at Brooklyn's Cathedral College. Talk about that. Yeah, there, was many, there were many thoughts, I'm sure, in, in his mind that he was going to go into the priesthood, and that was going to be his life journey. Uh, the football bug bit him, and uh, the rest is history. But uh, he really was, I, I think, a priest you know, through his profession and uh, never, never really lost sight of the importance of, of a strong relationship with the Lord in your life. And uh, that, that's really what drove him. That was a huge part of who he was. Well, you know, the way that most folks know Coach Lombardi was, well, that old-school sort of temper and that old-school discipline. And, of course, the word discipline comes from the word, in the end, love. I mean, this is, a, this is how we evidence love in our children's lives, is through discipline. And this was back in a day when, well, fo- folks sounded like this, and Lombardi's style of discipline was infamous for being loud, for being harsh. Some might say cruel and unusual. Americans remember sounds like these. Get him out of there, will you? Hey, what about that now? He had him on a, hey, he had him on a shirt. He had him on a shoulder pad. He didn't have him on a mask. What the hell's going on out here? Hey, interference! Interference! I'll tell you something, Leroy, you're not going to get your job back unless we get a better performance. Ouch. You know, Coach, Coach, look, I'm half Italian, Pat, so I think a part of this has to do with ethnic ethnic roots and ethnicity. But talk about this aspect of his coaching style, how the men felt, how the fans felt. And in the end, it's effectiveness, Pat, because this is the bottom line. It's effectiveness. Well, Lee, he could bark, there's no question, and he could really get after you. He could get after his players um, to, to the point that some of them, you know, just didn't handle it well. There's the great story. Uh, about Bart Starr, his young quarterback, and uh, at the beginning, uh, uh, Lombardi would tear into him, you know, out on the field in front of his players, and uh, Bart Starr really struggled with that. He went home and told his wife and said, listen, I uh, don't mind if he gets after me when, when we're in his office, but it's really humiliating. How am I meant to lead these guys, you know, if he's constantly tearing into me? And, and Jerry Starr said, well, Bart, why don't you go in and talk to him? 
Cherry later said, I never thought he'd do that because Bart didn't really like confrontation. But uh, the next day, sure enough, Bart Starr went in there and said, Coach, if you need to say something to me, uh, please do it in private and uh, keep it that way. It's going to be tough to lead this team, you know, if you're constantly on me. And Bart Starr said that's the last time, you know, he ever did that. You know, anything he had to say to me, it was always in private. And so uh, uh, Lombardi, uh, you know, could adjust. We, we, we often think of him, it's my way or the highway. But he, he, he could adjust, and he understood that each one of his players was different, and he could adjust to them. You have a quote in your book I wanted to read you, Pat. He said, he said this, A good leader must be harder on himself than everyone else. He must first discipline himself before he can discipline others. A man should not ask others to do things he would not have asked himself to do at one time or another in his life. Uh, this, this aspect of discipline, Pat, talk about that. Well, I think that that was Lombardi. You know, he uh, was down on the field. He was visible. He was present. Uh, he wasn't up in an ivory tower, you know, t- telling people what to do. He was right down among them and uh, lived his life right down among the troops. <clears throat> and uh, I think that's what a great leader does. Uh, they are visible and available, and they're, they're right there among their players. So, and Lombardi was a great student of human nature. He knew what he was doing. Uh, he wasn't just uh, aimlessly, you know, attacking people. He wanted the very best from them. And uh, over time, he learned uh, how to deal with each one of his players and how to motivate each one of those guys and, and bring out the very best in them. And uh, over that period in the 1960s, well, nobody did it better. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting that when Bart, Bart Starr comes to coach and offers some advice to coach about how to coach him, he listened. And this gets to that side of of discipline that I would call the mercy and understanding side. And a good leader knows how to use both because he knows his men. Pat, talk to us about how in exhibiting the mercy Lombardi's faith taught him, he was able to gain the faith and trust and hard work of his players. And I'm thinking of a story you tell about the backup quarterback, Zeke Bretkowski. Well, that's one of my favorite stories in the book. I talked to Zeke Batkowski. He lives up in the panhandle of Florida. Uh, he's in his mid-80s, but he told me the story uh, about how, I guess this was the off-season, there was a golf tournament going on, and a bunch of the Packers were in it. And somehow or other, uh, Zeke Batkowski lost his championship ring, and he was just devastated, just absolutely destroyed. And couldn't find it. Nobody could find it. Uh, uh, apparently, eventually, uh, Vince Lombardi heard about this situation. And that night, uh, with the use of a flashlight, uh, he went back out around parts of the golf course and darned if he didn't find the ring. And the next day, presented it back to Zeke Bratkowski. And, th- and that had to be, gosh, that was what, 50 years ago? Uh, Zeke Bratkowski can't get over it. He's still uh, just dumbfounded that that happened and that Vince Lombardi went to that trouble out there at night with a flashlight and and found the ring. So uh, Lombardi cared about his players. They really were his his sons uh, to to a large degree, and uh, that's why even to this day his players, elderly men now, 
you know, have such strong feelings about him. Yeah, and we're going to play a clip when we come back, and it's uh, from Jerry Kramer. And he, it's decades after being coached by Coach Lombardi, and he, he, he's holding back the tears, a grown man holding back the tears of another grown man coaching him as a grown man 30 years before. This is Lee Habib. I'm with Pat Williams, the co-founder of the Orlando Magic, no better writer on leadership in this country, and the subject, Vince Lombardi. On this day in history, he retired. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Are you going to go by my way by Lenny Kravitz? And everybody went the way of Vince Lombardi. He got men to play together with common purpose and to love one another. And we're going to talk about how Coach got the men to love one another rather than love him. This is one of the great tactical and strategic decisions great coaches can make and what great leaders can make. But first, I wanted to reintroduce Pat Williams, who's the co-founder of the Orlando Magic, and he has written so many books on leadership, it's hard to remember. But we've done an hour with him on John Wooden, uh, Martin Luther King, Jackie Robinson, Walt Disney. I just I, I, can't, I can go on and on, but we'll cover all of them, hopefully, over the next year. Pat, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a million, Lee. Always good to chat with you. Uh, same here. I wanted to play you a clip of Jerry Kramer, um, you know, we learned from Coach Wooden that he knew how to motivate his players, that he was a great psychologist, and uh, he truly understood how to get inside the head of, uh, of his players. And let's hear from all-time great guard and five-time Pro Bowl and all-pro guard Jerry Kramer. And then let's get your reaction. I jumped off sides one time in a scrimmage, and he got in my face, and he said, Mr. The concentration period of a college student is five minutes. High school is three minutes. Kindergarten is 30 seconds. You don't even have that. So where's that put you? Put me checking my shoe shine. I go up in the locker room, sitting there, chin in my hand, elbow in my knee, looking at the floor, thinking, I'm never going to play for this guy. And he came in the door, came across the room, slapped me on the back of the neck, messed up my hair. He said, son, one of these days you're going to be the best guard in football. He turned around and walked away. And that started my motor. With that comment, he allowed me to think about being a great football player. And from that point on, I worked my tail off. I gave him everything I had. It made a profound impact on my life. One day, you're going to be a great football player. Talk about that, that, that both that discipline and being hard on the boy, but then quickly thereafter, and this is a grown man who is in many respects still a boy, as we all can be, then that, that planting of that seed, Pat, the planting of that seed. 
Well, Lee, I think the message to all of us is that our words carry enormous impact. And it doesn't matter uh, whether we're an NFL coach or a parent or a teacher, a school teacher or whatever. Uh, when we say something, we may not think much of it, perhaps, but uh, the receiver of our words will never forget it. So here is Jerry Kramer with that little uh, sentence. It was one sentence that Lombardi planted in him, and Jerry Kramer said, that was the turning point in my career and a major turning point in my life. Amazing, isn't it? It the really power, is. Yep. The power of our words, uh, the power of the impact of our lives on other people. And yep. so uh, there's a marvelous example of, uh, of that in action. And I bet, Lee, uh, any person can sit down and, and look back over their life and say, it was a word when I was seven years old or a derogatory word when I was 12 and I've, I've never forgotten it or something. You know, we never forget uh, the impact of other people on our life and, and the words that they say to us. And whether we're uh, five years old or 75, you know, those words stick. So uh, Lombardi understood that, and uh, Jerry Kramer was the beneficiary. You bet. You know, you wrote in your book, and I'm going to quote two uh, specific passages from the great defensive end Willie Davis. Uh, and imagine a young African-American player going all the way up to this part of America where, boy, my goodness, there aren't a lot of African-Americans, and it's cold, and Willie's wondering what's going on. But here's what he says about Coach Coach Lombardi taught football and life in a way that helped you picture it in your mind. When he spoke, you could actually visualize doing what he said. You thought, I can do this, and I can become successful with it. And later you said, he could hear his voice from a block away, and when you heard it, you felt something. His emotion, it became yours. You could be exhausted, spent, unable to move, but then Coach Lombardi would start talking, and he'd get your blood pumping. And soon you were ready to go out and run your heart out for him. Emotion, he had it, and he communicated it to us. Talk about this this communication thing and also this vision thing, because they do go hand in hand. If you're going to communicate, what are you communicating? How are you communicating it? And what are you pointing people towards? Talk about those things, Pat. Well, I think the first two qualities of great leaders, uh, first of all, is, are, is vision, and secondly, uh, communicating your vision. And Lombardi was a visionary. We've got a story in there about John Madden, who I got to talk to. And John Madden talked about Lombardi's greatest strength was his vision. He knew where he wanted to take those Packers. Uh, he, he, he knew what the success was about. And he knew in his mind, well, the, he saw the finished product and then worked backwards, putting the pieces in place to turn that vision into reality. But Lombardi also knew that if you couldn't communicate your vision effectively and repeatedly, uh, that vision really wasn't going to do anything, wasn't going anywhere. And uh, that was another great strength of his. He had a strong voice. Uh, you knew uh, that he was there. And, yeah, he could bark. He could also be tender. He, he did a lot of yelling and, uh, and, and picked his spots pretty well. Uh, but those players responded to him, and uh, they knew exactly what he was saying and what he was trying to accomplish. So when you, when you study great leaders, Lee, every single one of them 
Uh, they all had a vision. They were all very strong and faithful in that vision, and uh, they had the ability to communicate their vision. Yeah, and we learned uh, that. Two vital parts of being a great leader. Yep, and we learned that in our discussion of Bear Bryant, if you remember. And there was that clip I had played you where all the boys who are now men were looking back at their lives with Coach Bryant. And it was interesting because you could tell that Bear's toughness had gotten them to bond closer together. Those boys had gone through a crucible together. And this was obviously and clearly part of what Bear was up to. And I, I can only guess this is what Coach Lombardi was up to, too. Well, I think there are many similarities between Bear Bryant and Vince Lombardi. Uh, they, were, they were strong. They were tough. Uh, they could bark. Uh, their players uh, were intimidated by them to, to a certain degree. And, uh, but they were both teaching life. And all of Bear Bryant's players told me the same thing, that uh, he, was, he was getting us ready for the long pull of life far beyond football. Now, he was a college coach with the much younger players, but Lombardi was doing the same thing as a pro coach. You know, he was investing in those players and getting them ready uh, for a long lifetime after football. So uh, both, both of them, and I think all great coaches really are great teachers, uh, remember what uh, Lombardi said. They call it coaching, but it's really teaching. Yep. So to be a great, a great uh, leader of any sort, you really have to be an outstanding teacher. You've got to work at it. You've got to really develop an ability to teach. And above all, you've got to be a lifelong learner because you can't be a lifelong teacher <laughs> if you're not a lifelong learner. That's so true. And you know in your book, Pat, you were talking about the, the three things uh, that are essential for building any winning team, whether sports, business, life, a church. And it's teach fundamentals, maintain discipline, and three, instill a sense of mutual love. And I wanted to know another quick reading from your book. And this is from Lombardi himself. Quote, if you're going to play together as a team, you've got to care for one another. You've got to love each other. Each player has to be thinking about the next guy and saying, if I don't block that man, my friend is going to get his legs broken. I need to do my job so he can do his Talk about that. Well, there's a lot to that, isn't there? At the end of the day, you know, great football teams are, are built be, by being great uh, teammates and having a great uh, sense of unity. And uh, Lombardi was uh, constantly stressing that. Every great coach does. Every great organization, I think, is made up of teamwork. Uh, there's an interesting story uh, about Jerry Richardson, the uh, Carolina Panthers owner, you know, who started that team up from scratch as an expansion team. And he had his first meeting with the business community in Charlotte. And he said, excuse me, may I come to the point? I want you to know how we do things. Number one, <clears throat> we believe in teamwork. Number two, we're always on time. <clears throat> Number three, we do what we're going to do. We, we do what we say we're going to do. <laughs> That's Jerry Richardson, the owner of the Panthers in Charlotte, uh, you know, at his first meeting in the business community. So teamwork carries the day, Lee. It always has, always will. Well, well, Pat, we really appreciate you joining us. We wanted to go out, uh, and I thank you for always doing this. We're talking to Pat Williams, the co-founder of the Orlando Magic. He's written so many books on leadership, I can't count them. Uh, but Vince Lombardi is among many. And uh, we're going to go out, Pat, uh, listening to Vince Lombardi 
who is not just a visionary, but what a communicator. And here is rare audio of Vince Lombardi giving a pep talk just before Super Bowl II. You're the only team, maybe, in the history of the National Football League will ever have this opportunity to do it twice. Boys, I am proud of you. I'd be so proud of that. I would just, I'd just fill up. It's not going to come easy. This is a club that's going to hit you. They're going to try to hit you, and you're going to take it out of it. Just hit, just run, just block, and just tap. We do that, there's no question what the answer is going to be in this ball. Keep your poise. There's nothing that they can show you out there. You have to face a number of times, right? Right, right. Pat, thanks so much for joining us. Much appreciated, as always. Lee, always good to talk to you. Thanks so much. You bet. And this is Lee Habib. And listen to the frankness, the simplicity with which Coach motivates his boys like they're predestined to win this game. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. is our american stories and now it's time for our american dreamer series and we've done a whole bunch on a whole bunch of types of people but every once in a while it's about a musician and by the way our music hours have included everything from frank sinatra to tom petty to kirk cobain miles davis john denver greg allman vladimir horowitz john paul white merle haggard chris stapleton my favorite aretha franklin and carol king chuck berry and of course johnny cash And I don't think you'll be able to figure out what our musical preference is by that list, because we love it all. And this story, well, Alex Cortez brings us the life story of a number one selling female recording artist and the number one in history, with over 200 million record sales worldwide. Take it away, Alex. Connie Francis liked to record songs, just not her most important one. Sorry now. I didn't want to do Who's Sorry Now. My father was after me for a year and a half to do Who's Sorry Now. I said, when was that thing written anyway? He said, 1923. I said, the kids at American Bandstand will left me right off the show, Daddy. He said, if you don't sing this damn song, the only way you'll ever get on American Bandstand is if you sit on top of the television set. So I didn't want to do the song, and I saved it for last, and I dragged out the other song so I wouldn't have time for Who's Sorry Now. But there were 16 minutes left on the session, and my father said, you got 16 minutes left? Sing the damn song. So I sang it like I didn't care. And that's how I developed my own style. And when she finished recording that song that she didn't like, there were only a few seconds left on the tape. That's how things worked back then. And as the relatively unknown Connie Francis thought would happen, the song also went unnoticed. At first, but on January 1st, 1958, it debuted on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Miss Connie Francis, who's going on? It would sell over one million copies going to number one on the charts in the UK, number four in the US, and for the next four years, she was voted the best female vocalist by American Bandstand viewers. She was only 19 years old, and she was a worldwide star. 
Not that her parents would treat her that way. I remember after Who's Sorry Now was a big hit, my mother one night said, take out the garbage. And I said, I, I don't have to take out the garbage anymore. I'm a star now. She said, I'll make you see stars. <laughs> so I would never get a big hit. She would see me writing in my diary. And she said, you're writing your diary again? What do you have to write about? You're not that important. She said that to you? Yes. <laughs> That's a pretty good humbling thing. <laughs> do, do you thank her for, for uh, doing yes. that? No. Yes, I do. <laughs> her mom wasn't really into her music career, but her dad sure was. Italian home in that generation, all Italian girls with Italian fathers who were living had to play the accordion. It was like a rite of passage. So my dad had an old broken-down concertina that his dad had brought with him from Italy. And every night he would play me songs on the concertina. And he asked me, do you want to take accordion lessons or piano lessons? I was three. So I said accordion, like a dope. Who could afford a piano anyway? And so uh, at the age of four, I gave my first concert. And I sang Anchors Away and O Sole Mio. You know, I have a three-year-old myself, and I just couldn't imagine them starting yes. to learn the accordion at that age. <laughs> the accordion was bigger than I was. But it was a great big stage at Olympic Amusement Park in Irvington, New Jersey. And I was four years old, and when I heard the sound of the applause, it was like a magical sound I've never forgotten. And I've been addicted to the roar of the crowd ever since. Can you really remember that age? I'm, I'm forgetting what the exact science is, but isn't it something like at age two or three, you know, you don't remember anything before then. Um, so I'm just curious how vivid your memories are. I remember it were yesterday. Do you remember being n- nervous before? No, this? I wasn't nervous at all. I was very eager to get up on that stage. <laughs> Music was always there in her Italian neighborhood that's called the Italian Down Neck. In Newark, New Jersey, and what was also ever-present was food. Well, food was a pagan ritual to Italians. I mean, they would refer to food as beautiful and nice. Look at that nice piece of pork butt. Have sit down, I'll make you a beautiful sandwich. Oh, Don. Where do you taste this cocoa, man? Your mouth and your mouth. I call it communion. <laughs> Everything was about food. They could be enjoying the most delicious meal, 12-course meal, and they'll talk about something they ate last week or something they're going to eat the next week. And at age 10, she was on a children's show for a whole year. And at this point, she was going by her full legal name, Conchera Franconero. But by age 12, when she appeared on the show Talent Scouts, hosted by a giant, Arthur Godfrey, things would change. He was having a hard time pronouncing Frank and Nero. So he said, come over here, little girl. He said, how do you pronounce your name again? So I said, Franco Nero, as if teaching him a foreign language. And he said, wow, he said, that's a toughie. Why don't we give you a good old easy-to-pronounce Irish name? Like, let's see. Like, what about Francis? And I said, oh, Mr. Godfrey, please, my father will have kittens. Can you please just try to say Connie Francanero tonight and tomorrow? I'll ask him if I can be Connie. What's that name again? <laughs> Francis. Connie Francis first got signed by MGM Records, and what hooked them was her demo song, Freddie. 
It was a silly little ditty. It was a squeaky song. Freddie, I know that you've been seeing Daisy. Freddie, like that. You have a standing invitation. Come MGM's Harry Meyerson liked the song, largely because it was the name of his son, whom he could give it to for his birthday. That is no joke. That's the real story of how Connie Francis first got signed. Then came Who's Sorry Now? And then the scary realization, where is my next hit going to come from? Could this all be over soon? And when we come back, more on the life of Connie Francis here on Our American Dreamers Stories. And what a story this is. More after these messages. is our American stories and we return to Alex's feature with Connie Francis and when they left off she was only 19 years old and had her first monster hit with who's sorry now but would she have another one Donnie Kirshner and he was a publisher with a broken down office and a broken desk and a broken chair and he called me and he said I have two kids they're phenomenal they're great songwriters I said everybody has great songwriters so he said, no, these kids are really great, Connie. One of them goes to Juilliard on a scholarship. That was Neil. Neil Sadaka. And the other one is a gopher, a music publishing company, but they've got great talent. So they came to my house, and we were living in a dilapidated house. I mean, it was when Who's Sorry Now hit. We had lost our middle-class home. We were living in a rented apartment in Newark. It was so depressing. There was wooden floors and... I'd get splinters in my feet when I was ever stupid enough to walk without shoes. And Neil nudged Howie in the, in, with his elbow, like, look at this place. So they played me song after song after song, and it was all beautiful music, but it was too educated. I said, I don't think you guys are going to make it in this business. I said, the kids don't dig this kind of stuff anymore. Don't you have something a little more lively? And suddenly Howie said, play her that song that we gave to the Shepherd Sisters this morning. And Neil said, no, Howie, she'll be insulted. She's a classy singer. They were whispering back and forth. So I said, play this song already, whatever it is. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I want to go to bed. I got to write my diary yet. So I was on my belly, writing on my diary and listening with half an ear. And then he, Neil played, stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. I'd like to clip your wings so you can't fly. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You guys got my next record, Stupid Cupid, hit title. Stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. I'd like to clip your wings so you can't fly. Stupid Cupid would reach number 14 on the Billboard chart and became her second number one single in the UK. And it was something else of a year. For Connie Francis. You had mentioned that they had come to your house and you guys were kind of down on your luck. You had lost your home. Can you tell us more of that story of of what was going on with your family? Well, my father put all of his business into a bleach that they sold only to Italian housewives. And he lost a $15,000 fortune and our house. 
my father, who never took a chance, took a chance. And I always look back. The end of 57, I was taking shorthand and typing in my Aunt Marie's office. The end of 58, I was voted the world's number one female vocalist. Following this success, she followed another idea from her dad, who might have flopped in his own career, but not in hers. And theirs was a complicated relationship. Well, it was a love, I can't say hate, but it was a love-resentment relationship. It was very combustible. We fought over macaroni and cheese and cheese and macaroni. We fought over everything. But at four years old, I was singing Oso and Neo in Italian and English. So, um, and then he encouraged me. When I was 14, we used to read the newspapers from cover to cover every, every day. Every night when he came home from work, he was a roofer. And he was, uh, you know, he had a little broken down roofing truck. But he was very smart, and he would read anything he'd get his hands on. And we would read the newspapers from cover to cover every single night. And when I was 14 years old, he said to me, Connie, someday if you ever do make it on records, and that's a long shot, believe me, it's a long shot. But if you ever do, I want you to think about singing songs in foreign languages, especially in Japanese and German, because aside from England, they're going to be our two biggest allies. And you can make more friends through your music than all the phony politicians in Washington put together. So that's what I remembered. When I did make it on records, I started recording in foreign languages. I did most of my singles in five or six languages. And the first foreign language album that her father recommended was in their native Italian. And of the favorite songs of that language, Connie went to the famous Abbey Road Studios in London. The Abbey Road Studios where the Beatles recorded and came out with the album... Connie Francis sings Italian favorites, which remained on the charts for 81 weeks, peaking at number four. And to this day, it's Connie's most successful album. And its single Mama would reach the number eight chart position in the U.S. and number two in the U.K. Connie would record seven more of these favorites albums, including in... Yiddish, a language that she actually learned as a young kid. Three years old, we moved in with my grandma. We lived there for two years. And if you weren't Italian in that neighborhood, you needed a passport to get in. Then when I was five years old, we moved to an all-Jewish neighborhood. And in that place, if you weren't Jewish, you needed a passport to get in. And so I learned a lot of Yiddish. It's a very comical language. It's sarcastic and it's comical. I think I knew more Yiddish than all the bar mitzvah boys I ever dated put together. And their parents would get such a kick out of it because I would speak to them in in their colloquial language. How how did you learn it? I learned it from listening to all the Jewish people in my neighborhood. And how old were you when, when you learned it as well? Five years old. Wow. And you're just joking about needing a passport to get in. You mean that? I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, you were an illegal alien if you weren't Jewish in my neighborhood. I mean, do you remember any kind of conflicts of your, your first experiences? Um, you know, any, any brushback that you got from people before you knew Yiddish and before they accepted you? Oh, they accepted me all right. The, the Jewish people have been among my biggest fans, even until today. I did record an album of Yiddish songs, and it was the best-selling Yiddish album, uh, Jewish album ever made. 
And of the languages outside of English, there was a clear favorite of Connie's. Japanese was the easiest language to sing of them all because it has no sound, no sound that isn't within the English language. There's no rolling R's, there's no a guttural sound like in German and in Yiddish. I would record a song in 10 minutes in Japanese. I've never heard anyone say that before. That's really interesting. You probably never interviewed anybody who sang in Japanese before. <laughs> You're right, Connie. And even foreigners who weren't supposed to hear Connie's music, like the people trapped in the Soviet Union, did. If anyone was caught with my recordings, they could go to prison or, or death. Um, I did a radio show on Radio Luxembourg, which was a clear channel 50,000 watt station, which went behind the Iron Curtains. Uh, there were 15 million listeners a day. And it went all to the, all the countries behind the Iron Curtain and even into Tunisia and Morocco. And I did the, that show, 15-minute show, every week from New York and would send it into Radio Luxembourg. So the first time I went to East Germany, I was standing in front of a record store and they sold only classical music. Uh, pop music was, not, was banned. And I heard uh, the song, O Calcutta. There were two teenage boys standing there, about 16 years old. And I said, "Uh, do you like American music? And they said, nein, nein. No, no. I said to them in German. And I said, do you, do you, um, well, what's that, where's that music coming from? And they started to run away. And I said, my name is Connie Francis. And they went crazy because they they had heard my my radio shows and they, they heard my music in German. And they went crazy. They couldn't believe it. And then they became very animated. I said, do you like American music? They said, yeah, yeah, you know. It was very exciting. It was on a one-day trip to East Berlin, which was a horrible thing. And there was yet another thing that Connie was a part of and would lead to some boundary-breaking. Her title track for the movie Where the Boys Are would reach number four on the charts and the Fort Lauderdale Florida-based movie would introduce the concept of spring break. And it caught on a little too immediately. When I went to do the movies, Fort Lauderdale was a prairie. It was kept in control by only seven patrol cars in the entire city. That was the police force. When where the Boys Are was released in December and January of Christmas time at Radio City Music Hall and at the Gateway Theater down here in Fort Lauderdale. 50,000 kids inundated Fort Lauderdale, and they had to call in the National Guard. They had to call in the Coast Guard. I-95 was a parking lot, and, and kids were sleeping on the beach, and, and uh, lots of kids were arrested. One kid was arrested for singing the Star Spangled Banner in the nude on top of a flagpole. Newsweek covered the story, and it was the biggest thing ever to happen in Broward County. My goodness, what storytelling. And when we come back, more of this amazing life, this remarkable singer, our American Dreamers series, Connie Francis's life, her story, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and now the final portion of this great American Dreamers feature on the life of Connie Francis. Connie Francis has truly lived the American dream, but not every chapter of her story has been bright. In 1974, while appearing at the Westbury Music Fair in New York, she was raped at a Howard Johnson motel and she nearly suffocated to death under the weight of a heavy mattress that the culprit had thrown upon her. She sued the motel chain for failing to provide adequate security and reportedly won a $2.5 million judgment. It was one of the largest such judgments in history and led to improvements in security measures across the hotel industry. Connie would also use this horrific experience and make something positive out of it. But not immediately. It wasn't positive for seven years. I didn't grant an interview, and I, and I didn't... Uh, I was a recluse until my brother was murdered, and then my brother's murder became my resurrection. I, I could no longer wallow in self-pity. And all during those seven years, I would receive thousands of letters from rape victims and victims of all violent crime. And I couldn't do anything about it, and I decided that I was going to do something about it. So I wrote the White House, I wrote the Reagan administration, and I was granted my own commission to fight violent crime. I wrote a Crime Victims' Bill of Rights, which was ratified by the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and I still have to get it into the precincts, which I intend to do someday. I had laws changed called the Earnest Resistance Law in New York, where a victim had to show forcible resistance to a rape before she could even prosecute the rapist. I had that law repealed. And I was responsible for a law called Proposition 8 in California. Not the one to repeal gay marriage, but a Proposition 8, which was the toughest anti-crime bill ever passed in California. And within one year, violent crime was reduced by 12%. What an incredible, strong, focused, and determined woman. Connie mentioned her brother's murder in bringing her back out into the public. What happened? My brother was an assistant district attorney, and when he left that position, he was an attorney for the unions. And he cooperated with the government against dental clinics that were being built by the unions. And he cooperated with the government, and they murdered him. And to this day, I have not recovered from that. How close were you guys in age? Two and a half years. He was younger than I was. I asked Connie, how did she find some semblance of healing after such two awful events? And how about in the aftermath in terms of how to, you know, try to... How to cope with it. I'm a very poor example of how to cope with it because I didn't cope with it well at all. Uh, But I did keep a diary, and I think writing things down helps you a lot. And I have had a lot of good girlfriends. Uh, I had five or six very close girlfriends. And also my sense of humor. I never lost my sense of humor, and I think that's what pulled me through everything. I find humor in everything, even in mental hospitals. Huh. What kind of humor have you found there? Well, I found a doctor who headed the Mummer's Day Parade was dressed as Cleopatra. 
was one thing. Then they said to me, "We, uh, you have." I said, "Wait a minute." They they wrote down Peggy Smith on my admittance, and I said, "Wait a minute, I'm not Peggy Smith. I'm Connie Francis." And they said, "No, we do that to protect your identity." I said, "I want people to know where I am. I want my name." No, it's hospital procedure. You have to be Peggy Smith. I said, "Look, I've been in show business all my life, and I'm under the delusion that I'm a star." So if you give me the name Peggy Lee Smith, I'll go along with that. So they said, okay. (laughs) To close, I asked Connie about some of her greatest regrets and fulfillments in her career, including not marrying Bobby Mac the Knife Darren, who started out his career as a songwriter for her. And when Connie's father learned that Darren Wanted to elope after one of her shows. He ran Darren out of the building at gunpoint, telling him to never see his daughter again. He would have, my father would have killed us. Well, he would have killed Bobby. And people say throughout the years, why didn't you hook up with Bobby later on after you were both successful? Because I was always afraid of his heart. My father had this pathological hatred for him that lasted until the day he died. Was there anything against him personally that he had? Well, he was male to begin with. So just the fact of another man taking taking his right. daughter? <laughs> yeah. So it could have been any male. <laughs> but especially Bobby. What I did resent was my father's control of my life, and I still resent it to this day. And in the dedication to my book, I write... Although my father was inarguably the architect of my brilliant career, he was also the source of my greatest personal pain. A career where she also found deep meaning. What's, Connie, what's been the most fulfilling part of your career for you? I think entertaining the troops in Vietnam. I came back a different person, a much more serious person. And I was appalled at the way our veterans were treated when they came home from that war. Because to me, everyone who was there was a hero. What did you see in Vietnam that surprised you? The, the horrible. The MACV hospitals where they could perform any uh, kind of surgery, say for neurosurgery. And I would go to those first and speak to the guys. And 18-year-old kids, the average age of the Vietnam veteran, crying in the night for their mothers. Um, was that even a controversial decision to go over there, period? I'm sure some artists were so against the war that they probably wouldn't even go. I was against the war, too. I supported Richard Nixon because he told me personally in his apartment that he had planned to end the war. That's the reason I supported him in 68, and I sang the campaign song. I was terribly against the war, but I wasn't against our troops, and I felt that they needed a touch of home, and it was the most gratifying experience of my life. Well, I went by myself. I didn't go with a troop or anything. Um, you know, like Bob Hope, would, they'd stay at the Thailand Hilton and they would fly in and do a show and then fly out. I went to all the boondocks. I wanted to see what the, what, what, was, what, was, what the war was really all about. Connie Francis, a patriot, a child star, a worldwide star, an advocate for victims... An American Dreamer. And what a story. Great job on that, Alex and Joey. 
I don't think it gets better than that. I was against the war, but I wasn't against the troops. It was the most gratifying experience of my life, she said about entertaining the troops in Vietnam, and it was the most serious thing I ever did. She also said this about her dad, my father was the architect of my career, but also the greatest source of my pain. And that's why we love doing these stories about singers and artists. And I think that's why we're drawn to them. They share openly their pain, their wounds, and that's a hard thing to do. And they do it. And it's raw and it's real. And my goodness, what raw, real storytelling by Connie Francis. And by the way, ouramericannetwork.org is where you can find our storytelling on Frank Sinatra, on Merle Haggard, the Aretha Franklin Carol King story, remarkable, Chuck Berry, Johnny Cash's story will kill you, Miles Davis too. But this past hour, the life of Connie Francis, her story celebrated here on Our American Stories. stories and we often bring you the story of a song we've covered dozens of them on this show and you can hear them all at ouramericannetwork.org another brick in the wall there goes my life jesus take the wheel georgia on my mind and light my fire by the doors and now we bring you another doors song story and it's told by ray manzarek best known as the keyboardist and founding member of the doors with Jim Morrison. Sitting at his Rhodes keyboard, Manzarek demonstrates here the creation of Riders on the Storm like the masterful musician that he was. So one day we're jamming in the studio, I mean in our rehearsal studio, in the Doors workshop before uh, we got, uh, before we started recording. And uh, for some reason or another, Robbie was playing his twang guitar. And we were doing a old cowpoke went riding out on dark and windy day. And the Jim said, I got lyrics for that. I got lyrics for that. And he had uh, Riders on the Storm. Riders on the Storm. And I said, wait, wait, okay, that's great, man. Riders on the Storm. We can't, but we can't do, to, we can't do Vaughn Monroe. Or the old cowpoke went riding out one dark and windy day. So I said, let me see what I can do with this. And here's what I came up with. 
We gotta put some jazz to it, make it dark. And sure enough, this is what happened. But before we get to that, oh, oh, oh Jerry Chef's there when he, when he comes in, we've got the whole thing together. And Jerry Chef says, What's the bass line? I said, Like simple. E minor, A major. He said, Oh man, that's impossible. I said, What? For you? That's not impossible. Let's, look at this. It's like nothing to it. And he said, Uh uh. That's, that's on the piano, right? That's on the keyboard. Sure, that works great on the keyboard. There's nothing to it. Watch this on the bass guitar, and I don't know what the hell he did. He had to go through machinations, like turning his wrist up virtually upside down, inside out, trying to play it. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, man, but it sounds so good. And it's so easy on the keyboard that you got to play this. And he went, okay, okay, I'll play it. And here's the rain part. Thunder. After we finished the song, he said, Oh man, I've got super rain and thunder. It's riders on the storm. It's raining on the desert, right? Yeah, exactly, Bruce. Raining on the desert. He said, we got to put in some, uh, some rain and thunder. So sure enough, I mean, the whole thing starts with... And then that bass line. Another one. Ender Morrison. Riders on the stone. Riders on the stone. Into this house we're born. Into this world we're thrown. Like a dog without a bone. Actor out on loan, riders on the storm. So it's basically a blues song. It's a one, four, five, except we change the five. And this insane part that Morrison sings, there's a killer on the road. Brain is squirming like a toad. Take a long holiday Let your children play If you give this man a ride Sweet family will die Killer on the road Yeah, Robbie And we're listening to the one, the only Ray Manzarek, founding member of The Doors As he walks us through the creation Of this masterpiece Riders on the Storm, which was released in June of 1971. Ray goes on to give some vivid insights to the haunting lyrics crafted by Morrison. And again, this is why we love telling these stories. You're hearing it from 
Manzarek himself taking us into the song, taking us into the DNA, into the coding of this song. And by the way, you don't hear music like this in a mixture of jazz and blues and country western and all mashed together in this creative and almost brilliant way. And what a story Morrison's telling. He's really putting you in a place. And so let's continue with Ray Manzarek. And then Jim sings, Girl, you gotta love your man. Girl, you gotta love your man. Take him by the hand. Make him understand. His world on you depends. Our life will never end. Gotta love your man. He had the idea to make a movie about a hitchhiking killer. And that's, if you give this man a ride, sweet family will die, killer on the road. But he couldn't, he couldn't leave it at that. He couldn't, the song was just too haunted and too beautiful. And almost, almost as if he had a premonition. And certainly, he knew he, at this point, singing this vocal, he knew that he was going to Paris. You know, he knew he was going to Paris. He hadn't told anybody before we did this vocal, but he knew he was going to Paris. And he was singing his love to Pam and trying to wipe out in his mind and on the planet that killer on the road. So he says, girl, you gotta love your man. Girl, you gotta love your man. Take him by the hand. Make him understand. His world on you depends. Our life will never end. What a great line that is. I mean, isn't that the ultimate love? His world on you depends. Our life will never end. Gotta love your man. Girl, you gotta love your man. Keyboard solo. Thunder. Then Densmore kicks it in again. And we're back on the highway. Riders on the stone. Jim's back in. 
Riders on the storm Into this house we're born Into this world we're thrown Like a dog without a bone An actor out on loan Riders on the storm Robbie play some great guitar Jim and that haunted voice Riders on the stone Riders on the stone And what a performance. You just want it to not stop, actually. And that's what we do here on Our American Stories, the story of a song. That's Ray Manzarek, Riders on the Storm. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to all that we do, and particularly our stories of a song. It's one of our favorite regular regular features. Another Brick in the Wall, There Goes My Life, George on My Mind, Light My Fire, and many many others and again thanks to Ray Manzarek for that instruction it's like it's like going to school but the kind of school you wish you'd had in your life but never did and so we leave where we started this is our american stories